going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, and we're going to start from verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Well, you might think it's a bit strange to start a series at the end of a book, because we're looking at a book with 12 chapters, and we just read from the last chapter. But tonight what we're going to do, after I just put this on the other stand, um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at chapter 1 in reference to the end of the book because what you get in Ecclesiastes is a lovely bookend. You get the reality of the life we live but also the hope that we have in Christ. So we're going to have a look at that tonight and as we do I want to encourage us with a prayer. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we go through this sermon tonight from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, may you give us encouragement. May you lift our eyes beyond our present circumstances to the hope we have in heaven. And that might mean that we might live bolder and stronger lives together. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, as we start the new series, as I said, we're hoping this will be uh, a book that will give us encouragement in these times. And the reality is that Ecclesiastes often strikes a chord with modern people at the best of times because the whole uh, topic that's dealt with in the book is that of meaninglessness that despite all our striving, we constantly get frustrated and we have hopes that seem to come to end sometimes. For example, work can be really, really fulfilling, but if you get passed over for promotion time and time again, or you have conflict at work, you can actually find yourself losing your passion for even your dream job. Sport is a lot of fun, but if you follow a team that's regularly at the bottom of the table like I do, it can actually be very deflating to be uh, watching sport as well. Family is supposed to be a safe place, but constant arguing can cause you to feel more uncomfortable at home than you do outside of the home. You see, happiness can seem at best fleeting and at worst unattainable. So how much more during this pandemic are those things true? The predictability of disappointment after disappointment as we just come up to Christmas, we're thinking things are starting to ebb away. There's the vaccine on the horizon and we're starting to think we might have been through the worst of it. And then unfortunately, we have another breakout in the northern beaches and we're back sometimes, we think, to square one. This year, Christmas was different again. Last year we had the fires, this year we had COVID. But also, we have all sorts of different disruptions to our lives during this, don't we? The young couple who are preparing for marriage, who've delayed their engagement party three times and decide to just call it off. The family who prepare to fly to be reunited with loved ones in another state only to be dis disappointed by another border closure. The daughter who wants to visit her mother at Christmas only to be told that there's no visitors at the nursing home. 
The end of the year that should be marked by a boisterous family lunch is marked by a socially distanced funeral. Life under the sun can be hard. And the book of Ecclesiastes does not shy away from these topics. It doesn't brush them under the carpet and try and pretend that by following God everything will be rosy and perfect. It has a brutal honesty about it that I find appealing. And time and time again in my life I go back to Ecclesiastes, particularly during times of discouragement. Because what Ecclesiastes does is, number one, show us that yes, there is a lot of meaninglessness to life. But life following God can bring joy and meaning. Everything is, is meaningless. We get this from the very beginning. But as I said, we read from chapter 12. So why don't I start from chapter 12, verse 8 tonight? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. I think that's a good phrase to sum up the whole of the book. Solomon, who's writing the book, he's the son of David, he's the king of Israel. And when uh, God asks him, what would, I, what would I give you? Anything you ask for. Solomon asked for wisdom. And then, of course, Solomon employs this wisdom. But as he employs the wisdom that God has given him, he's become very discouraged. Let's have a look at that because chapter 1 is actually quite a deep look at the meaninglessness of human life. Chapter 1, verse 3 should come up on the screen behind me. It says this, What do people gain for all their labours at which they toil under the sun? What is there to gain from all this striving that we do? You know, Sydney is one of the, the bustling cities of Australia and I, met, I, I went to, uh, to South Australia one time on a holiday and I went and visited some friends. And when I went to their place and started talking, they were all surprisingly quiet as I was thinking, well, everyone's very quiet. And I was talking and telling them all these things and they were really quiet. And then after a little while I paused and I said, haven't you guys got anything to share? We haven't seen each other for a while. And they said, oh, here in, in Adelaide, we just let you Sydney people talk for the first 20 minutes because you guys like to talk about yourselves. And I thought, oh, that's interesting insight. I said, not just me. They said, oh, particularly you, Stu. <laughs> but anybody from Sydney, you seem to want to tell me what's happening at work and you tell me about the kids and you tell me about how good you're going at different things or whatever it is. Even if things are going hard, you like to tell, me about, tell us about all these hard things. In Adelaide, sure, we do a bit of that, but we don't seem to be doing that as much as people from Sydney. You see, in Sydney, we labour and we toil. We work hard at everything we do and we're always in a rush to get to the next place. But Solomon asks a very deep question. What do you gain from all your rushing around? And he says, what do we gain from toil under the sun? Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 4 to 11, he unpacks that in detail to kind of try and look at it from different points of view. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. In other words, even though we toil and we work as hard as we can, we're only here for a moment. And as each generation comes, it goes, and it's replaced by another one. I'm reminded that when I look down my family history that I really don't know anything much about my family members beyond my great-grandparents. I don't know what it's like for you. You might have known someone older than that, but isn't it quite sobering to think that in two generations' time, there might not be anybody on earth that remembers you? Now, I don't want to depress you today, but we're being realistic about our time on earth. So is Solomon. He goes on in verse 6. The wind blows south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. In verse 7, he talks about the streams that flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they'll return again. The idea here is this constant movement and striving without accomplishment. 
or any real lasting change. These cycles that he describes in, in, in the environment around us, in nature, are meant to mirror humanity's inability to achieve anything in the long term, really. Anything that's really that new, anything that's really that lasting, anything actually that's really that satisfying. You, remind, you, you might remember those of you who are my age or around, you know, as adults, when you were a kid, you used to look forward to Christmas with even more passion. Maybe some of us still look forward to Christmas with passion. The kids who are here today, you know, do you look forward to Christmas with passion? Well, I remember when I was looking forward to Christmas, I used to think if, when I get the bike I'm asking for for Christmas, then I will be truly happy and I won't need anything else. And I used to go to bed every night so excited about the bike that I'd asked for and I couldn't wait to get that bike and I couldn't wait to get that bike. And I almost used to get, maybe you're not like me, but I used to love Christmas and I used to get obsessed with that thing that I'd asked for. And you'd get the bike on Christmas Day and all of your joys would be summed up in this wonderful shiny bike that was before you and you'd take it for a ride. I remember when I got my green BMX bike, I think it was now a cruiser bike, whatever it was when I was a kid, and I got my brand new bike and I unwrapped it and it looked beautiful. As soon as I went out the front of the house, I hit a gutter and fell over and the bike got scratched. You know how they say the first scratch is the deepest? Oh, isn't it heartbreaking when you get a brand new phone or a brand new computer or a brand new car and you think this is going to make me happy but then it sort of gets scratched or it breaks or you're always then thinking what will be the next thing that will make me happy? Well, the, well, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says if you keep living like that, you will constantly be frustrated. You see, in verses 8 to 11, he says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Isn't that interesting? The eye has never got enough of seeing. It's like, no matter what you've got, you always see something better. I've got a great car, a combi van. I love my combi van. But I saw a guy drive past me in a 75 Porsche on the way down to holidays last week and I was like instantly looking at that car going, gee, I love a 1975 Porsche. I looked it up when I got down to this camping site and found out that they're about 80 grand. I'm like, okay, I won't be getting a 75 Porsche. But isn't that a funny thing about us as human beings? We're always looking for the next thing. How frustrating is that though, that we can't just be content with what we have? Verse 9. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which we can say, look, that's something new. It is already long ago. It was already here before our time. No, no one remembers former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Now, that sounds particularly bleak, because you might be sitting here going, yeah, but Stu, what about the SpaceX rocket? The SpaceX rocket designed by Elon Musk and the SpaceX team is going to apparently carry a thousand people to Mars by 2025 and they reckon they're going to build a thousand starships that are going to be able to go up into space and come back down and land again like nothing that's ever been before. Isn't that new? Yeah, I suppose. But the philosophy behind that isn't new, is it? Elon Musk is talking about becoming an interplanetary species so finally the human race can rise above its weakness and failure. And so that we don't just die on this dying planet, we might be able to spread out across the universe and become the potential that we really are. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, when people built a tower to the sky in hope that they might become like God? You might think of something new, but the problem with everything new is there's always a dark side to everything we do as human beings. This is the theme of Ecclesiastes. 
What I like to say is even every good thing has shadows and creatures live in the shadows. Let me explain what I mean. The iPhone gives us the ability to connect with people like nothing ever before seen. And yet, the iPhone itself has led to higher and higher rates of youth depression, youth anxiety and even youth suicide. Science has brought the human race so far. We've got cheap manufacturing, healthcare, long distance travel, but at the same time we're poisoning our world and our climate. We have social progress, but yet we have more deep divisions in our society year by year and growing rates of dislocation and loneliness. We might get a good job, but we have to work such long hours in our job that we hardly ever get to see the kids. We have grown our economy through trade and immigration and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a trade war. We, we retire after a life of work with heaps of super and investments and all the money we need to have a good retirement and then we get sick and we can't enjoy it. I watch or read the news every day. It's always bad news. Have you noticed that? So much so that my son Elijah laughs at my habit of watching and reading the news. He goes, why do you do that to yourself? When is there any good news? It's all bad. Every new day brings more stories of disappointment, failure, violence, lost opportunities and greed. You know, this is what I call the frustration of Solomon. What I'm articulating tonight might be your frustration too, because it's definitely my frustration. What Solomon has witnessed with his wisdom is not just his own personal experience, but it's the experience of all human beings. Again, in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 8, we ask the question, what's the point then? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. In verses 9 to 12 of the chapter 1, Solomon talks about the fact that life is just in this cycle of hope and disappointment. He asks the question through the rest of the book that we're going to unpack over the next four weeks about all the different aspects of that. That really is really interesting and helpful. But when we get to the final chapter, chapter 12, he kind of nails down this idea that I want to talk about tonight. In chapter 12, verse 11, he says that his words are like goads and embedded nails from the shepherd. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? His words are like goads and embedded nails. There's this sense of, this sense of like primary industry in these images, isn't there? Like this sort of primeval kind of basic human experience of needing to actually understand the very basics of life in order to survive. We don't even use some of these words anymore, goads. We don't use that word anymore, but a goad used to be a stick that people used to use to guide an oxen. He's saying that his words are almost like guiding the oxen. That means we're like oxen. That means like we're beasts of burden. But doesn't that remind you of someone else's words when you hear that? Didn't Jesus himself say that his burden is light? And if you take his yoke upon him, that will change everything? Remember when Jesus talked about that? He too used that same domestic language, but in a completely positive way, whereas Solomon is using it here in an interestingly different way. A way that suggests this, is life just like being an oxen? <laughs> is it just like being led out into the field day after day? Sure, some oxen have better jobs than others. Some get to walk through the fields and the rice paddies, but some just have to go round and round in circles and make sure that the mill grinds. 
There are levels of oxen, but at the end of the day, oxen are oxen. And his words are like a goad. Are we just oxen? Well, Jesus' words of hope are resonating in my ear. I don't think we are just oxen. Because Jesus has talked about not only is the burden of the oxen that is so heavy light when he gives the burden of his words, but he says he'll take the yoke from us. Remember when Jesus talked about that? Well, here in, uh, in chapter 12, in verse 11, this sense of embedded nails. Have you ever gone to a, a, an old fence? Have you ever seen one in, in Australia? Some of our old fences go back 100 years. Sometimes fences... Um, are still in their original state. You can actually see a fence out in, uh, where I, when I go and visit my friends in Bulwarrina, there's a lot of these kind of fences that the termites haven't even been eaten down because the wood is so hard. There's 100 year old fence posts and the nails that have been embedded into those fence posts are so embedded, you wouldn't be able to get the nail out it's, or it would break. The nail's in there and it's rusted and it's firm. It's holding the piece of wood together. But if you try and take it out, you just can't do it. And I think what's going on here is there's this sort of contrast here between the permanence of the human position of frustration, but there's this hope that there is maybe some alternative. Because after he's made his case that life on earth is really hard, so hard that you can't actually get away from the realities I've described tonight, it makes the words of Jesus when he talks about this even more beautiful. Do you know what I mean? If someone solves a problem, you can be impressed. But if someone solves a really hard problem, that's when you get really impressed. And that's what Solomon is about to say. There is not a capitulation to suffering in Ecclesiastes. It's not like we need to say, oh, well, that's just the way things are. I might as well just have fun and just die when I die, whatever. There's a big but wait in Ecclesiastes. Let's have a look at verse 13. Now all has been heard, there is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. See here, what Solomon is realising is that actually, rather than fearing the drudgery of life, he actually realises there is a God. Well, he knows there's a God, not realises. He knows there is a God. And because he knows there is a God, he will fear God, not the circumstances of his life. Can you see the contrast of that? You either, you, everyone fears something. You either fear the circumstances of your life might change or you fear God. Solomon is arguing, fear God and keep his commandments. Live his way. Don't live your way from crisis to crisis. Live God's way in the security of his love. In verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. You see, God sees everything and will judge everything. And so Solomon is asking us to change the orientation of how we see the world. Now, I love drones. I haven't got one, but I love seeing those drone footages. We got that at the beginning of the service every week, and I love it. And what I love about it is the new perspective it gives to things. I love seeing a drone go over the same beach I surf at, because when I'm surfing and I paddle into rough seas, all I can see are the challenges in front of me. The waves I have to duck dive, uh, the enormous rollers coming in, whatever it is, the other surfers I have to juggle, I'm constantly looking for danger. But when I see a drone footage of a surfer who's paddled out the back and then caught a wave, 
I just see this majestic sight of what looks like a dancer dancing and gliding on water. It's beautiful. And I think what's going on here is this change of perspective spiritually is, is, is actually a really powerful thing. You can't change the circumstances of this world, but you can change how you deal with the circumstances of this world. Your stance to this world is what is important. In the Westminster Confession that was written many years ago, this is how they describe this idea. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So taking the words of fear God and obey his commands, you can see it unpacked there in that confession that to fear God is to glorify him and to follow his commands is to enjoy him. Again, Jesus said, you have a heavy burden and a heavy yoke, I'll take it from you and the yoke or the burden I give you will be light. I've come to give you life to the full. So our chief end is actually to enjoy life and to find meaning in life that would otherwise be meaningless. Do you get that? Now the challenge for me as a Christian is I hear that and I go, yeah, but I want to do all these other things too. The great news is that this is a very practical teaching. This isn't telling me to stop living in the Southern Shire and then go and become a monk. I'm not to sit in a cave and enjoy God by just dwelling on his words. It's actually, I need to live my life differently from this new perspective. See, in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 6, this is what Jesus says. He helps us to understand the fear of God really helpfully. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. So in other words, if there is a God, and there is, and if he has called on you to be in relationship to him through his son Jesus, which he has, to trust that Jesus is the way back to God because unlike us, Jesus has never sinned and as a result has died on the cross as payment for our sins so that we do not have to fear judgment. The wrong we have done has been paid for by Jesus and if we accept his payment of sin for us on the cross, we can ask for forgiveness based on his work in the hope of grace and forgiveness. And I want to finish the sermon tonight to say that if that is you tonight, and you are really interested in how this new stance of forgiveness and new life and fearing God and obeying his commands impacts your life, I want to give you seven really practical ways that fearing God benefits you. Because the great news is that the fear of God in Ecclesiastes and what Jesus talks about in Luke is not just a theme in those two places in the Bible, it's actually a theme that goes right through the whole Bible. And there's lots more to learn about it that we don't have time to, to look into tonight. But what I want to do now is give you seven quick glimpses into the benefit of what Solomon is encouraging you to do tonight. Because my fear is for us as Christians in a materialistic world in Sydney is that we want to have one step in the world and one step in these promises. That yes, we want to fear God and do his commands, but we also want to just live lives like everybody else in Sydney too. But we can't have a love of God and a love of money in other words, we can't have two separate stances to this world. We have to decide what we're going to do. And this might help you to decide to truly believe Solomon when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
That's what he says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. We think this is the same author. Let me read it to you. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 promises, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you want, one of the first benefit I want to say tonight is that if you want to understand deep spiritual knowledge, it begins by the fear of the Lord. Deep spiritual knowledge is the key. Your understanding of the scriptures is directly related to your understanding of your relationship with God. You can't get wisdom from the scriptures unless first you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and trusted him to guide you in everything. But if you do that, the second promise is true for you. Divine wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Isn't it awesome to be promised good understanding? Can you see how that is a benefit? Because see, if you just live your life from one crisis to the next, you keep making up your own decisions time after time about what you think might be the right decision. But if you pause and you fear the Lord and want to obey his commands, you're actually tapping into divine wisdom. The spiritual knowledge of your salvation creates divine wisdom that you can bring to bear to every new situation. So you can cultivate an attitude of godly fear in your life daily as you come before God and pray. That is a key that's going to unlock a lot of wondrous riches for you, not only salvation but wisdom and knowledge for your daily life. The third is related to this. The third beautiful benefit of fear of God is a unique weapon against sin. If sin is the unique problem that all human beings share, we're all rebels, we've all rebelled against God, we all think we know what's right, even when we become a Christian, in Galatians, Paul tells us that we still have to fight against our sinful nature while ever we're alive here on earth, even though we've been given a new spiritual nature and the Holy Spirit by God. In Exodus 20.20, 20, this is what Moses says, the benefit of the fear of wisdom will give you against your own sin. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Have you ever thought of it like that? That we can have victory over sin. You know, the New Testament teaches that. You don't have to sit in the sin that oppresses you, that holds you back from a relationship with God and other people. You can overcome things. You don't have to keep on sinning. If you're struggling with sin, you can examine your attitude towards God. Again, you can have a new stance and fear the Lord enough to want to please him. Does that make sense? That's the strength that you get to fight your own sin. It's you want to please God, and so you try and stop sinning. Even when no one is looking, you want to please God because he is looking. Because you know the fourth blessing of the fear of God, and that is the mercy of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Isn't that what we need in our world today? Not arguing about who is right and who is wrong all the time, round and round and round. It's meaningless. It's literally meaningless. Our political discussions just seem to travel around and around and around. What we need is mercy. We need to admit our fault and we need to ask for mercy from God. And that, interestingly, extends generation to generation. That leads to the next promise, and that is life. The fifth benefit of fearing the Lord is in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. 
Now, God himself ordains how many years you have on this earth. But the writer of Proverbs says this, if you follow this logic of the fear of the Lord, you will live so differently that it will probably extend your life. A funny aside is I was reading an article the other day while I was on holidays that said that married men tend to live longer than single men. And that's not to put singleness in any shadow or to put down the fact that single men often will live longer too. But the study was simply saying that left to myself, I would probably choose to eat more KFC than the fact that I have my wife sitting next to me in the car. Although this holidays, Elijah and I went to KFC and we were about to go and get two burger meals and we realised that if we got a family meal, it cost the same. So we came back with this massive box. It was so delightful. But we came back to the car and Louise was like, oh, you're going to eat all that chicken? <laughs> that was because I had someone who was just helping me to make better decisions. How much more is it better if we have God helping us to make those better decisions? That it's the fear of the Lord that helps me, even in KFC, to make the right decision. You know, Jesus said that our bodies are the temple of God. We should look after our temple. Do I live that out? Do I make choices based on those realities? Well, if I do, the sixth blessing of the fear of the Lord follows. It's the protection for you and your children. If you fear the Lord, you get protection for you and your children. Proverbs 14, 26. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. And that's not just for um, your biological children. It's your spiritual children. There are those of us here today who have biological children and those who don't, but we all have spiritual children. And if we live lives making good decisions about our life and we live longer as a consequence because of those good decisions, then our children will watch us. Remember that ad that was on TV recently that they were discussing that the ad where the guy says to his kid, go get a beer for me? Did you see that ad? And the ad was meant to show that by getting your kid to go and get a beer out of the fridge, then that kid will say to their son or daughter, will you go get a beer? Will you go to get it actually creates a pattern. So they were actually encouraging people in the ad, even if you drink, please don't ask your kids to go and get you a beer because it might encourage them to think about drinking alcohol earlier or whatever. There's studies that are related to that. So the opposite is true. If you keep making really good decisions because you fear the Lord and you actually have a household or a church that is benefiting from your commitment to humility based upon the fear of the Lord. See, it's about humility. If you have a humble stance and go, God knows what's best, then your kids in your church or your family will grow up with that view too. Finally, the beautiful one we've already talked about, so I'll only talk about it in passing. We have friendship with God if we fear him. Isn't that wonderful? Psalm 25 verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. What other religion in the world claims that God came to earth to become one of us? There is no other religion. And that's why many people say Christianity isn't actually a religion. It's a relationship. Because our God made us for relationship. And after we rejected him, he offers us that relationship to be renewed in the Lord Jesus. That gives us a life of righteousness and holy fear of the Lord, where we gain friendship with God and come into an intimate knowledge of his thoughts. So what I want to finish with tonight is that Ecclesiastes does come at life with brutal honesty. But it also says that if you fear God and follow his commands, 
It's not passive. It's not a passive way to live. It's something, not something that you do once or something you do when you go to church and then you forget about it when you have to live the rest of your life. It's active. It's not static, but it's dynamic. A righteousness of holy fear displays itself through a humble servant who has a reverent obedience to God's will, purposes and commands. And that is a daily adventure. And that's how you live life to the full. Because no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you can ask the question, how can I fear the Lord in this circumstance? How can I obey his commands right now? What is it right to do right now? I'm going to leave you with one example. We went on holidays last week and it rained for the whole week. To be honest, I was a bit disappointed. I had the, I had the frustration of Solomon. Even holidays are meaningless. I plan a holiday in the sun and all it does is rain. There we go. That's Ecclesiastes off the bat, right? But do you know what I got to do while it was raining? I got to hang out with Monica all week because she camped right next door to us. And you know what? Every morning Monica would make a breakfast and she'd come over and she'd sit down with us at our family table and every night we'd all share dinner together. Monica had her chicken and we'd have uh, our curries and things that we had. We'd have little day trips with each other. And you know, Monica encouraged me every day with a smile when she woke up and the last thing she gave me before she went to bed was a smile. She didn't grumble and complain once. I grumbled and complained a number of times. I had a pocket on my tent that filled with water and I was annoyed by that. My boys were walking in and out of the tent putting sand in the tent. I was annoyed at that. I was annoyed that I couldn't go for a surf because the surf wasn't good enough. I was annoyed by this, I was annoyed by that. But every morning I saw Monica's smile and she would also just say, how are you going today? What's it? Just really simple, really lovely things. But it really convicted me this morning as I sat down to prepare my sermon for tonight that I think we've got sitting amongst us is a sister who fears the Lord. And she's one example. I look around a room of people who fear the Lord. I know many of you fear the Lord. I know many of you attempt to obey his commands. That doesn't mean we're perfect and we get things right all the time. We're not always going to make the right calls about COVID. We're not always going to make the right calls about all the different things we do. But do we fear the Lord? Are we attempting to live our lives to his glory? Because when one person does that, it's infectious and it affects other people. I found myself this week repenting of my grumbling and complaining and sitting down and just enjoying the week. And then I was confronted with Ecclesiastes this morning and I, it was almost like a conclusion to the week I had. It's a reminder and an introduction to next week and a conclusion to each week, actually, for all of us. Every week we come to the confession. Can I encourage us to think about the confession in this way? Do I fear the Lord? Do I seek to obey his commands and really believe there is benefit to my life? We've moved through a lot of things really quickly tonight. And if anybody would like any more detail about this, I'm going to put um, some of the summary of this up on the Pulse for those of you who have Pulse. So you might want to have a look at some of these verses later and have a think about it yourself if you want to go and revisit this. But in the meantime, can I encourage you, this is really simple. It's just about your stance towards life. Don't let the difficulties and the concerns of COVID or anything else infect your spirituality. Let the fear of the Lord and your desire to obey his commands be the guiding golden rule of your life rather than letting anything corrode and erode you. And for that purpose, I'm going to pray as we finish tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you confide in us who fear you. Thank you that you've made your covenant known to us. Help us to live that covenant out with 
passion, even more passion than we have for anything else this week. May this passage be an introduction to leave our frustration behind and help us to be humble and reverent, obedient servants that seek your purposes and commands above all else. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.